Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. I feel like I got my precatory wish and the news cycle has calmed down just a little bit from the Supreme Court. It's been a little bit of a snoozer this week, I would say, as the Supreme Court kind of gears up for its Thanksgiving break. Who do, you, who do you think on the court makes the best roast turkey? I'm going to go with Breyer, just personally off the bat. Yeah, I feel like Breyer's definitely the cook of the justices. And, and so I, I would definitely lean towards him. Although I have to feel like Justice Sotomayor might have a really good uh, Thanksgiving too. I suspect that... like. You know how some people do like deep fried turkeys? I would peg like probably Gorsuch and Kavanaugh as like the kind of outdoor manly man, like to drop the whole turkey in the deep fryer and potentially burn the house down. But that's just a complete speculation and a theory. <laughs> See, I'm all about the spices and like the adobo, which is why I'm going for like Justice Sotomayor. <laughs> okay, I see. I got you. So anyway, it was a uh, relatively sleepy week at the Supreme Court, but there was some news um, shortly after we recorded last week's episode. Justice Samuel Alito gave a pretty controversial speech at the annual gathering, I should say virtual gathering of the Federalist Society. This is the very uh, right-wing legal network that has supplied a lot of President Trump's judicial nominees over his uh, first term. And Alito gives this address to the Federalist Society and made pretty big news for some of the topics that he was willing to broach. Yeah, so so you were actually listening in. Kind of, uh, can you break that down for us? Sure. It was a very politically charged speech, as I said. You know, Justice Alito kind of leaned into a lot of the culture world topics like religious liberty, uh, you know, the liberal law school orthodoxy, he even touched on abortion, Second Amendment, gay marriage. I mean, everything was pretty much on the table. But I've covered some of his speeches before in the past. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, par for the course, what we've come to expect from some of Alito's public appearances. What stood out this time, I think, was his willingness to kind of dive into the whole COVID-19 crisis and some of the legal disputes that we've seen bubbling up around that. And he had some pretty interesting takes on how he views some of these COVID-19 restrictions that have popped up in states across the country over the last several months. The pandemic has obviously taken a heavy human toll. Thousands dead, many more hospitalized, millions unemployed, the dreams of many small business owners dashed. But what has it meant for the rule of law? I'm now going to say something that I hope will not be twisted or misunderstood, but I have spent more than 20 years in Washington, so I'm not overly optimistic. In any event, here goes. The pandemic has resulted in previously unimaginable restrictions on individual liberty. So just as Alito has obviously been in dissent in a couple cases since the start of the pandemic, that involved churches challenging limitations on the number of people that can attend religious gatherings. So there's one case in particular that he talked about in his speech on Thursday involving a challenge to a cap on religious gatherings in Nevada at 50 people. Um, So he kind of says, you know, he he rehashes a little bit of his dissent there. He says, you know, the state's sending a message to, you know, everyone who can listen that, you know, forget about worship and head to the slot machines or maybe a Cirque du Soleil show because he points out that the, uh, you know, the businesses and casinos in that state weren't subject to that same 50 person cap and said it was a 50 percent capacity. 
Um, but I should just mention that the the calculus for some of these cases has kind of changed now that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no longer on the court, having passed in September and been replaced by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who's seen kind of widely as this you know staunch uh, supporter of you know religious liberty. She's a staunch Catholic. Uh, she you know obviously taught at uh, Notre Dame Law School for many years. Um, and there are actual cases pending before the court that involve some of these same legal issues about challenges to uh, the ability for people to congregate in church. So this will definitely be an interesting thing to watch going forward. And potentially Alito is signaling on Thursday that, hey, you know, this is something that I care strongly about. And I think the court should really revisit its position in deferring kind of too much to these state health officials here and maybe give it a closer, closer look, some more scrutiny so that we can, you know, remove some of these caps on people's ability to, you know, worship, attend church, etc. Speaking of Justice Alito, he was uh, tangentially in the news also uh, this week because one of his former clerks, Dana Remus, who had been um, general counsel for President-elect Joe Biden's campaign, was named his White House counsel. Uh, and, And she actually had clerked for Justice Alito back in 2008. Yeah, this one was kind of took some people by surprise, the idea that someone who clerked for, you know, probably one of the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court would now be um, President Biden's or President-elect Biden's top White House lawyer. Um, maybe there's a hope there that she'll become some kind of SCOTUS whisperer, if you will, as Biden tries to navigate a six to three uh, majority of Republican appointees on the court. I think that's a little bit optimistic um, to, to expect that she'll have really any influence there whatsoever. Uh, but it is really interesting that, you know, some of these justices hire counter what they call counter clerks like that. So, you know, people with different ideological leanings than they have. Um, I have it, to imagine it, it just sharpens their writing and their opinion making to have that, you know, counter argument in your, in, in your chambers, essentially. Right. I mean, I think that's kind of what uh, the dynamic is like when you have a dissent. A dissenting justice. It, I mean, they often talk about how dissents actually make their majority opinions that much stronger. So I, I think there's probably some truth to that. It was interesting to read an old letter to the editor. She wrote to the Washington Post in 2013. So the Post had written this very critical um, opinion piece, basically slamming Alito um, for some of his perceived antics, I think the author referred to him like rolling his eyes at Ruth Bader Ginsburg or something like that. And she she writes this letter to the editor and she says, you know, he has no deep and abiding disrespect for women. In fact, he is a good man who serves every day with humility, dedication, and incredible intelligence and insight. So some pretty strong loyalty uh, there from a former clerk, despite what are probably pretty distinct ideological differences. It's reassuring, right, that that people can get along even if they they probably don't see eye to eye. We should only hope that'll be the case uh, among all the Thanksgiving Zooms this coming week. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So turning to what did happen at the Supreme Court this week, there was a a Monday order that really, I know, took our notice. Uh, It involved a Texas geriatric prison, uh, and the court has denied this application to lift a stay um, that would have forced the prison to implement certain s- safeguards, uh, social distancing, mask wearing, quarantining patients, contact tracing, etc. Uh, there was a pretty fierce dissent from Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, joined by Justice Kagan, that it was wrong 
for the for the, the other justices to deny this application. Um, so just, you know, a bit of a background, this prison known as Wallace Pack Unit had its first COVID case back in April. And since then, 500 inmates have tested positive, which is over uh, 40% of the population, and there have been 20 deaths. It's a geriatric prison. These are, you know, 65 and older, essentially the most vulnerable population to COVID. Um, And a lower court had implemented an injunction that had called for these further safeguards back in September, but the Fifth Circuit stayed that injunction pending an appeal. Um, You know, there's a question as to which, whether inmates had, you know, failed to go through all their options and seek relief through the prison's like internal grievance process before coming to the courts. Um, Justice Sotomayor, again, joined by Justice Kagan, she was like, you know, this is such a grave situation and that this grievance process can take like half a year or more usually um, that it's right for the, the prisoners to be coming to the court system now and seeking these injunctions. Uh, she had some pretty strong words. Uh, you know, the PAC unit is a tinderbox for COVID-19, not only because dormitory-style facility, and which makes social distancing impossible. Um, and also, she noted the, the you know, just the, the age of all these inmates and how many suffer from chronic health conditions and disabilities, um, you know, she did also know that if things get worse, the plaintiffs can come back to the court. But she said, you know, because I would not force them to wait until it may be too late, I respectfully dissent. Yeah. And these are alarm bells that she's been ringing since the start of the pandemic um, and her approach to some of these uh, lawsuits that have been brought by prisoners across the country in, in, in federal facilities that are you know, being, I guess, in her words, ravaged by the pandemic. But it is also in line with the court's decisions in some of these cases to kind of deny this application because, you know, as we've seen, they're very hesitant to tell the government what to do, you know, whether they're doing too much or not enough. So I think we've seen a pattern of that. I would just note that it was interesting to see that Justice Alito's, you know, he didn't seem to have too much of a problem deferring to the government in this case, although, you know, in different religious liberty cases, he seems to have a different approach there. So changing gears to another case that I kind of caught my eye was that the House Judiciary Committee is asking the Supreme Court to cancel a December hearing in a pending case involving access to the Mueller report. This is a pretty interesting one. I think we've talked about it before on the show, right? Once or twice, to say the least. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to refresh everyone's memory, it's a battle between the DOJ and the House Judiciary Committee over whether the Judiciary Committee can demand some of the secret materials underlying the Mueller grand jury. Um, So obviously, Mueller impaneled a grand jury and they heard all this evidence and that went into a Mueller report that went to Congress. Now, Congress wants the full thing because the version that they got was filled with redactions from some of these materials like exhibits, transcripts, et cetera. And they want this because they say that it could potentially show and give more insight into President Trump's alleged misconduct during the Mueller investigation, um, his alleged attempts to interfere with the investigation and potentially uh, obstruct justice. So they were doing this as part of like an ongoing impeachment inquiry. I know we already had the impeachment, but it never 
formally was closed. Um, and so this dispute kind of bubbled up in the courts and a court, um, several courts actually, ordered the DOJ to turn over some of these materials. The DOJ appeals all the way to the Supreme Court. They say that you know they can only they can only share some of these secret grand jury materials uh, in certain judicial proceedings, and this impeachment inquiry is not a judicial proceeding per se. Um, and so the Supreme Court is essentially reviewing this case to see whether the DOJ has to comply, whether they have to turn over these documents, um, and they set a December hearing in the case. Now, there's a small intervening event here, and that is in the form of the November elections. And so the House is back before the Supreme Court, and they say, you know, that pretty much has changed our calculus here. Um, And they say that the results of the election could affect whether or not they still want some of this information. Um, And they point to the fact that, you know, President-elect Joe Biden has received enough votes to be the projected winner uh, in the Electoral College, um, and uh, that once the new Congress comes in and the new president is inaugurated, they say we'll have to determine whether it wishes to continue pursuing the application for some of these materials. What feels like it's being unsaid here is also that a new administration AG could reverse course and just share the documents, right? Right. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. The DOJ under uh, William Barr has obviously taken a very hardline stance against sharing some of these potentially incriminating documents about uh, President Donald Trump, a Biden AG may feel totally differently. The Trump administration filed a brief on Thursday saying that they're pretty much open to whatever the court wants to do here. Uh, it will is happy to proceed with oral arguments on December 2nd, when, where the case is currently scheduled, or it will you know hold the case over until the new Congress takes its seat, and then the court can kind of figure out what to do with this uh, this dispute between the DOJ and the House committee. Yeah, it's certainly on our radar. Again, this is scheduled for the December oral arguments, which are going to be jam-packed with some cases that we're watching. So for our listeners, uh, next week is Thanksgiving, so we'll actually be taking a break from the podcast, uh, barring any, you know, crazy news (laughs) from the Supreme Court. Um, But we will be coming back, and so will the court with oral arguments. So this Mueller report case is on the agenda. Uh, There's also a very interesting case involving Nestle and Cargill, these two huge corporations who are facing these novel lawsuits uh, where the plaintiffs are trying to hold the corporations accountable for their foreign operations. And in these suits, they're alleging that the companies have benefited from African child labor, i.e. child slavery, and that they should be held liable under the alien tort statute for human rights abuses. Uh, The Ninth Circuit had held that these companies do have to face these suits, which uh, created and served up a, a circuit split for the justices to weigh in on because the Fifth and Eleventh Circuits have held differently in similar cases. Obviously, this suit could have some really large ramifications and implications for global companies if the court holds that they can face these kinds of suits in American courts. So the Supreme Court's actually going to hear another census case um, next argument session as well. I know we haven't gotten enough of those recently, but this one is a a pretty important one involving whether the Trump administration can exclude unauthorized immigrants from their census counts. Now, this is all about apportionment. Essentially, the Trump administration argues that, you know, factoring in the number of uh, unauthorized immigrants into census counts is going to inflate uh, the congressional power 
of you know heavily democratic areas that tends to have more unauthorized immigrants than Republican ones. Um, you know, obviously the census is used to apportion representation in Congress, and so it's kind of a pure bare knuckle politics, hard power political fight um, where Democrats say that this is actually going to lead to underrepresentation and in fact underfunding. Um, in that uh, the, the Trump administration's efforts to exclude unauthorized immigrants um, are kind of a uh, basically a violation of the uh, executive's job to carry out Congress's wish on how you know the census counts should be done. And in fact, they won at the uh, district court level. Uh, there was a three-judge panel at the district court because of you know involved apportionment, and that's how they how they work. Uh, but the, the panel was uh, unanimously decided that it wasn't even a particularly close case and that the Trump administration should lose here. So whether the Supreme Court feels differently, we should get an, a bit of an idea on uh, November 30th. So even with a new administration slated to come in, uh, my understanding is that what the court ends up deciding here, and uh, I believe, Jimmy, you've mentioned that there is a December 31st deadline uh, to this that it will be what it will be and it will be what the Trump administration says, not the incoming administration, correct? That's right. Uh, Trump had, the Trump administration has until December 31st uh, to submit the tabulation of total population by the states. Um, And so that's why we're expecting this on kind of an expedited basis. It was taken up on an expedited basis by the Supreme Court. Um, So the election... Uh, although we can obviously assume that Biden wouldn't have undertaken this initiative to, you know, exclude unauthorized immigrants, that you know, should it be upheld by the Supreme Court, that is what will stand um, for the tabulation for the uh, apportionment going forward, which is obviously, you know, happens once in a decade. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, hasn't been getting a ton of coverage lately with everything else that's been going on, but something that we'll uh, be eager to talk about. So I think that just about does it for us this week. Uh, Jimmy, it's been great chatting with you. You as well, Natalie. And we will be back in two weeks after the holidays to go back over some of these cases. I'm so excited. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporter this week, John Steingart. Music for the show comes from Sunderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 and the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. It really helps others to find us. Thanks.